Lord, you know that verse you gave me in Proverbs 9 this morning, that the tongue of the righteous brings life. I would love to bring life, Lord, to Mercy Hill Church this morning through your word. And would you help me to do that? And would you use your word to do that? And you know, I've got a lot of other things that are in the back of my mind. I pray that you'd help me to focus and give me clarity of mind and um, accuracy in your word and your heart, that, that Mercy Hill could feel some of your heart which you gave to James to write in this passage and bring life and transform our view of conflicts and quarrels and fights in marriage and in every relationship. Do this for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to talk this morning about conflicts in marriage and fights in marriage. What, what should you do when you're in a conflict in, in, a, in your marriage with your spouse, when you're in a fight with your spouse or with, with a friend or with a roommate? What should you do? Now, I, I googled uh, marriage and fight. And the first link that came up, absolutely fascinating, um, said something really interesting. It said, fights can really be helpful for a marriage, and they can actually be strengthening for a marriage if you fight fair. I thought it's an interesting concept. And then here's the list of, do we have this up here? We're getting there. Here's the list of what it means to fight fair. No blaming, no accusing, Lots of listening, lots of I statements, as opposed to, you know, you, you, blah, blah, act, you know, accusing statements, lots of I statements. Hold hands while you're fighting. I think that means, it's not going to throw something, you know, it's affectionate, okay, hold hands while you're fighting. No name calling, no bringing up past history, no sarcasm, no yelling, and be willing to forgive. And I thought about that. I thought, okay, now if you're holding hands and you're listening and you're not yelling and you're forgiving, you're not fighting. <laughs> okay? You're not fighting. And so it just struck me, all that this website's telling you to do is stop fighting. Have you ever tried that in the middle of a fight? See, I, I think things are a little bit more complex than that. I'm not sure it's as easy as just <laughs> let's hold hands, honey. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay? Things are a little bit more complex than that, a little bit deeper than that. So let's, to find out like, can, what some of these deeper issues are and what some of the deeper complexities are and how to work your way out of a fight, let's turn in the Bibles, in our Bibles, to the book of James. James chapter 4. What are the deeper issues in conflicts and quarrels, and how can we deal with them? James chapter 4. Now, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're excited about having every single one of you have a Bible you can look at. The Bible's the important words this morning. My words are helpful to the extent that they open up the Bible to you. Okay? James 4 is on page 1012 in the Bibles we're passing out. Now, just as a side note, I would guess there may be some of you here today, and you're wondering... Okay, why would you go to a 2,000-year-old book to answer questions about marriage today? 
And I think that's a really, really good question. And we welcome questions here at Mercy Hill Church. Questions are good. And that's a good question. And I, I mean, that would take a whole sermon to develop in more detail. But let me just throw out one thought, which I hope might help you see that there's, there's, this is plausible that it could be this way. So at least you'll give James a listen. Okay, here's the one thought. If there really is a God who's created the universe, can you look out that window or that window, or you look at the eyes and hands and and bodies that we have, if there's a God who's created the universe and created you with that power and wisdom and authority and creativity and love, and if he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, and in Jesus we see God, he's fully God, fully man and fully God, see his power in raising the dead and healing the sick and multiplying five loaves and two fishes to feed thousands. So if that's who God is, then surely God could choose to communicate to us by specially gifting certain men to write truth that's directly from God himself. There's nothing intrinsically contradictory about that, is there? Could God do that? Obviously he could. Now, that doesn't prove it. But I just simply want to help you see that it's plausible, if that's like not where you're coming from at all, so that you would at least give James a listen. Because James is one of those guys that God specially gifted to write truth directly from God himself. And since God's created us, and he's created marriage, and he's created relationships, it's plausible to think that God might tell us how to deal with conflicts and quarrels and fights that come up. A little bit of background about James before we look exactly at what he says here, just so you know. James was written by James, okay, Jesus' brother. And Jesus' brother, obviously he grew up with Jesus. He didn't buy the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, didn't buy the fact that he was the Son of God, and resisted that through many, many years, even through years of Jesus' earthly ministry. At some point, we're not clear exactly when and how, God changed his heart. And he saw his sinfulness, and he saw his brother, Jesus, as the Son of God, the Messiah, and he trusted Jesus, and he was saved. And he became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And you might think, well, of course, that's pretty cushy. I mean, you kind of get it on the, on the tail ends of you know, your brother's Celebrity. Well, yeah, but he was killed. James was killed in AD 63 for his faith. So this wasn't some cushy, hey, it could be a good idea to hop on board this thing. He was convinced. He became a follower of Jesus and he paid with his life for following Jesus. 20 years before he died, as a martyr, around 43 AD, he wrote this letter to followers of Jesus that were scattered around Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he starts right off talking about what? causes, quarrels, and fights. Can I before you, don't look at what he said yet. Hold on. Don't look, okay? Just think in your mind, what's a quarrel or a fight that you've been involved with recently with your spouse or with a friend? Okay, what's a, a quarrel or a fight that you've been involved with recently? Can you, can you think of one? Or just imagine, okay? Now, what caused it? Why were you fighting? And I think all of us would answer, well, it's because of what he or she did or didn't do. That's why we're fighting. It's because of what he or she did or didn't do. The the cause of the fight is outside of me. It's them. Right? That's why you're fighting. Look at what James says in verse 1. It's not what he says. Something very different. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
So the cause is not something outside of you. It's not the other person. It's not what they did do or what they didn't do. What caused it is something inside of you. It's your passions that are at war inside of you. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you have a passion inside of you that's at war, what that means is that it's a passion that's not fulfilled and that's not happy about it. Right? It's, a, it's an unfulfilled, frustrated passion. I mean, if your passions are, are fulfilled, they're not fighting. They're like mellow. They're kicking back. They're happy. These are not mellow, kicking back, happy passions. These are fighting passions because they're not fulfilled. And you can see exactly how James explains that in verse 2. He says, you desire, there's the passion for something, and do not have. Frustrated about it. So you murder, there's the quarrel or the conflict. You covet, there's the passion, and cannot obtain. You're frustrated, it's not, you're not getting it, so you fight and quarrel. So here's the way I'd summarize what James is saying. Quarrels and fights are caused by frustration over unfulfilled desires. That's the cause. Now let me throw out an example to see if I can persuade you of this. It doesn't look like you're entirely buying into this one yet. Yeah, but she... Okay, just listen, okay? Imagine... This is a, an illustration for the women, okay? Imagine, women, that your kitchen sink pipes have been clogged up for weeks and you haven't been able to use your kitchen sink and all the inconvenience that that would cause, okay? That'd be a real bummer. Men, take note. That's not a good idea to let that happen. All right. Now, let's say that Friday night, you're gonna, you, you women are going to go to the grocery store and as you head out, your husband says, Hun, I will fix the, the kitchen sink pipes while you're gone. I'll take care of it. It'll be fine and you're happy and you take off and go to the grocery store. When you come back, you, you walk in the door, and there he is watching the Lakers win, and the kitchen sink pipes have had nothing done for them. And a fight starts. Okay, you start fighting. Now, what's causing that fight? Well, you could easily think, my husband's laziness, thank you. That's obvious, okay? And, and your husband's laziness is an issue that needs to be dealt with. We're not going to sweep that under the rug and forget about it. But James would say, that's a factor... But that's not the cause. The cause is your heart frustration over the clogged up pipes. That's the cause of the fight. It's your heart. That's what's caused it. Now let me give you an illustration so that you'll see this. Just another twist in the story. Let's say that while you're driving home from getting the groceries, you get a phone call on your, on your cell, and you have won a two-week, all-expense, fully paid flight and cruise in the Greek Isles with, with a $5,000 shopping allowance. Nice, okay? Now, when you walk in the door and you see that the kitchen pipes are still clogged, how would you feel? How would you feel? You'd feel a little better about the pipes, wouldn't you? It, would you agree it wouldn't be as big of a deal? Was there a chance you wouldn't fight? I think there's a really good chance you wouldn't fight. Did that persuade you at all? You're all, it's like you're, okay, what if, okay, $10,000 shopping allowance. <laughs> Was that, is that better? Okay, How, whatever the amount is, here's the point. There's things that could have happened in your heart that would have made the clogged pipes not worth fighting over anymore. That's the point which shows that the cause of the fight is not the pipes, it's the heart. Do you see that? There's things that could have happened in your heart so that you wouldn't have cared about the pipes anymore. 
All right? Which shows that the cause is not the husband's laziness, it's not the clogged pipes, the cause is your own heart. It's your frustration over those unfulfilled desires. Dale, take care of the pipes, brother, come on. All right, he just said, told you to share. Anyway, all right. But he was just being talking in theory, we understand that, okay. Okay, but now, so James has taken us, here you've got the level of the conflict, and James wants to go deeper and say, it's caused by your frustration over unfulfilled desires, but now James wants to go even deeper and say, what causes your frustration over unfulfilled desires? Look at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now you could immediately think, and for a long time I thought, that what he's talking about here is asking for whatever passions you're frustrated about. Like, God, have my husband fix the pipes. That's the most natural thing you'd think he's talking about here. But I don't think that's what James has in mind here. Notice in verse 3, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on your passions. So there's a wrong kind of prayer where your focus is on your own passions and that word passions is the exact same word passions in verse 1 that you're frustrated about. Hmm. See the problem? So what does James want us to be asking for in verse, at the end of verse 2? If the main focus of our prayers is take care of the passion that I'm frustrated about, James says we're asking wrongly. So what should be the main focus of our prayer? I mean, in this passage, what does God promise to do? That's the question I asked. I saw two verses. One is in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So one thing God wants to give us is grace. Grace simply means lavish, over-the-top good to completely undeserving and unworthy people. That's grace. It's through the cross. It's through Jesus. God wants to give us more grace. Okay, but what is that? James puts it more specifically in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So I think what James is talking about here is that God wants to give us the grace of his nearness. Okay? Now, We've got to understand this. We, we know that God's everywhere. He's omnipresent is the theological term for it. But there are times when God's nearness becomes experienced by you in ways that it's not always experienced. So this means, right? There's a sense in which God's always near to you. But there's other times where he makes his nearness specially felt and experienced by the Holy Spirit. So it's being talked about here. You draw near to God, he can draw near to you. And this is amazing because... I've sinned, you've sinned. How can a holy, righteous God draw near to me? It's only one way. It's through Jesus' death on the cross, paying for our sins. We're clothed with his righteousness. And when I trust Jesus, I can have the living, holy, righteous God come and draw near to me. And when God draws near to me, I sense his presence. He pours his love into my heart. So I move from knowing that God loves me, which is glorious, to feeling his very love poured into my heart, which is glorious. And I 
am satisfied with his nearness. I behold his glory. I bow before his holiness. I see his goodness. And when God draws near to me, my heart, and you've experienced this if you know Jesus, your heart is completely satisfied. Even if the kitchen pipes are still clogged. Your heart is completely satisfied when the living God draws near to you. What Steve Darrow was sharing this morning about God being on this worship, I mean, many of you, I'm sure this morning, sensed God's nearness during worship, and your heart just becomes completely satisfied. Psalm 16, it's in God's presence that there's fullness of joy. So that's what James is talking about here. So the reason that we have frustration over unfulfilled desires is because we haven't sought the grace of God's nearness. Okay? Isn't that true? I can guarantee you, if last night I fought with Jan, I could guarantee you that yesterday I had probably not at all sought the grace of God's nearness. If you've been fighting with your spouse recently, isn't that true? You can't go from the grace of God's nearness satisfying your heart to fighting. Okay? Now, at this point, I think James anticipates maybe an objection from his readers. It goes something like this. I've prayed, okay? I've prayed lots and lots and lots, but I still haven't had my my heart satisfied with God's nearness. Haven't come away satisfied from that prayer time. And look at what James says in verse 3. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So sometimes you can pray, but we still don't receive the the heart-satisfying grace of God's nearness. And the reason is because, again, the focus of our prayer was on spending it on our passions, um, getting our immediate passion that we're frustrated about satisfied. Which means that the focus of your prayer isn't on God himself. God, more than anything, I need you I long for you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Psalm 63. So in other words, if the focus of your prayer is, God, have my husband fix the kitchen pipes. Please, I'm praying. I'm pleading with you. Have him fix the kitchen pipes. It's been weeks. Inconvenient. Have him fix the kitchen pipes. If that's all you're praying, you will leave that prayer time at least as frustrated as when you you began. Not that you shouldn't pray about things like that. We should pray about everything and anything. But is it helpful to put it like this? The main focus of our prayer should be for God's presence, for God himself. While we pray for everything else that concerns you. I'm not saying don't pray about your husband's laziness and about the kitchen pipes. I'm just praying, make the main focus of your prayer, God, you are my God. I seek you. I long for you. The nearness of God is my good. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 73. Make that the main focus of your prayer and then pray for everything else as well. And you will end that prayer time content. Even with nothing else having changed in your circumstances. Is this making sense? Okay, we'll do some Q&A in a second. You can can probe into that more if, if you want to. So James wants to dig deep and show us the real cause of our quarrels and fights. And he's, he's went down, gone down to one level. The cause is frustration over unfulfilled desires. And then he's probed deeper. Why am I frustrated over unfulfilled desires? And the reason is because I have lacked God-centered prayer. That's why. 
There's been a lack of God-centered prayer in my life. But James doesn't want to stop there. He wants to dig one last step, one more deep revelation here. Why has there been a lack of God-centered prayer? His answer is very sobering. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity, opposition with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why have you prayed wrongly just for your passions to be fulfilled? Why hasn't there been God-centered prayer? James doesn't beat around the bush. He's not here to make us feel good. He's here to redeem us and to free us and to bless us. And the reason that there's been a lack of God-centered prayer is because we have adulterous hearts. Ouch. Now, what's he talking about? Let me explain it like this. When you become a follower of Jesus, you enter into a covenant with the living God in the person of Jesus. A covenant to seek and find your all-satisfying satisfaction in God. He is the all-satisfying treasure of the universe, right? There's, there's nothing else that's all-satisfying by a long shot, okay? And when you become a follower of Jesus, you, you covenant with God in the person of Jesus. You're my prize. You're my treasure. You're, you're my all-satisfying passion. I'm going to seek my heart satisfaction in you. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so when your heart gets empty, you turn to Jesus and you seek him. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes me will never thirst. Heart hungers, heart thirsts, satisfied in Jesus. So you, you bring your heart, hung, your heart emptiness, your heart hunger to Jesus, and you meet him in the word, in his promises, in the truth of scripture, in prayer, by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, but now if, you, if you've not been pursuing God-centered prayer, you haven't been pursuing your satisfaction in, in God through Jesus. Straight up. You haven't been. Not only that, because your heart is still unsatisfied and we're always seeking for satisfaction, if you're not seeking it in God, you're seeking it somewhere else. Right? Just the way it is. So if I look back on my day, week, and there haven't been times where I've been centered in on God on my face before him saying, I need you, meet me. I long for the grace of your nearness. Pour out your spirit upon me. If there haven't been times like that, then I've been adulterous. Because not only have I not been seeking God, but I've been seeking my satisfaction in something other than God himself. Okay, Just like if a husband seeks his sexual satisfaction in someone other than his wife, is an adulterer, so... We, if we're seeking our heart satisfaction in something other than knowing God and Jesus, we are adulterers. Now, a little distinction here. This doesn't mean that we find no joy in anything else. God has lavished his blessings upon us. So you can find joy in a Monterey sunset. You can find joy in a microbrew. You can find just all kinds of things God's given you pleasure in. And he's given us those things to reflect his goodness so we move from those to see all the more how heart-satisfying he is. But if we turn from him and start to seek our heart-satisfaction in those other things, what happens if you start seeking your heart-satisfaction in alcohol? It'll kill you. 
or in, I don't know, like, what else? Like uh, food, that could kill you. Or in, you know, whatever else. Then you'll turn it into an idol. Okay, so God wants to give us lots of joy in lots of other things. We enjoy other things. We seek our heart satisfaction in Jesus. We don't seek our heart satisfaction in other things. We enjoy them as God brings them to us. We seek our heart satisfaction in Him. Does that make any sense? You can ask more about that later too. Okay, all right. Where was I? We have adulterous hearts. Did you feel that? If I haven't been seeking God in prayer, I've been seeking my heart satisfaction elsewhere, which means I'm an adulterer. And that's serious because as James says in verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. An enemy of God. This isn't talking about being friends with people who don't know Jesus. Okay, Jesus calls us to love people who don't know Jesus and serve and befriend people who don't know Jesus and to do all we can to show them Jesus, help them come to know Jesus. It's not what James is talking about here. This is talking about seeking our heart satisfaction in something other than God. If you're seeking your heart satisfaction in anything besides God, which is the world, then you've, you've made yourself an enemy of God. You do not want to be an enemy of God. You do not want to be an enemy of God. I would guess some of you are on the brink of, or already are, you've made yourself enemies of God. You don't need to stay there, but let me explain why, why you make yourself an enemy of God. Well, James explains in verse 5. He gives a reason for why he just said that in verse 4. He says, Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says, He, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. God yearns jealously for your spirit. If you could see in God's heart now, there'd be a white, hot, burning passion for your spirits. Not to get something from your spirits, but to give something to your spirits. What? What does he want to give to your spirit? He gives a greater grace. God gives more grace. Verse 6, God gives more grace than anything in the world will ever give. God is jealous to give you the heart-satisfying grace of his nearness. Because here's the picture. Let me flip it around. If there's somebody who's passionately heading in this direction, and you are going to oppose them in going in that direction, you're going to make yourself their enemy, right? Right? Okay? So if God's passion is to give you the heart-satisfying grace of Nearness. If he's got a burning passion, he yearns jealously to give that to you. If you oppose that passion, you're making yourself his enemy. You are opposing the passionate purpose of the creator, God, of the universe. Somebody once said to me, oh, I'm not sure I can think of how, exactly how it goes now. Oh, well. The idea was, it won't be quite as crisp as it could have been, the idea is that God is, is either going to pour out the lavish grace of his nearness upon you, or, if you resist that, then he will destroy you. It's one or the other. 
That's what James has just told us, right? So God's burning passion, His longing, is to pour out His presence upon you, to satisfy your heart with the grace of His nearness. And see, that's good news because He is the only all-satisfying treasure, resource that there is. You've all lived long enough to know that nothing else satisfies you. If you're 12, you know. And if you're 80, you know. Okay? Only knowing God in the person of Jesus can satisfy us fully. So that's why there's been a lack of God-centered prayer, because our hearts are adulterous. Now, do you see what James is doing here? This is amazing, and it's devastating. And that's a good thing. He's like a skilled surgeon. Okay? He's got this surface problem on the skin, fighting and conflict and quarreling. And he's like a skilled surgeon. He wants to probe down and say, what, what's beneath that? Oh, it's frustration over unfulfilled desires. But he doesn't stop there. That's not the real cause. He wants to cut a little bit deeper. Oh, lurking beneath that, there's a lack of God-centered prayer. Oh, but that's not deep enough yet. Cuts beneath that. Ooh, there's the problem. An adulterous heart. An adulterous heart that is seeking heart satisfaction in something other than knowing God in the person of Jesus. Now, why does James need to go there? I mean, why couldn't he just like give us some positive thoughts and encourage us along? It's because if, if sin is the root, you've got to identify it and pull it out by the roots to solve the problem. If you cut a weed off at the top and think you've solved the fight and the conflict, let's hold hands on you for a little while, okay? If you think that's going to solve the problem, it's not going to solve the problem. The root is still there. All through the scriptures, God wants to help us pull the root of sin up by its roots. Pull that sucker out of there, right? And that's exactly what James is doing here. And so here we are, our hearts are exposed, they're adulterous. And so we say, well, James, what can we do? And James is very encouraging to us. There's something we can do. And look at what he says in verses 7 through 10. First of all, if it weren't for Jesus, we couldn't do anything, okay? Because the, the sin of our adultery is too wicked for God to just sweep it under the rug. And secondly, the power of an adulterous heart is too strong for you simply to change by gritting your teeth. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, including the sin of having an adulterous heart, if you'll repent and trust him. And his death on the cross broke the power of sin, even the sin of an adulterous heart that you couldn't break by yourself. So it's because of Jesus, adulterous hearts can be changed. And that's where James is going in verses 7 through 10. Here's steps. I'm not sure it's exactly like chronological or logical, but I'll take them as, as a list. They all probably kind of overlap as you go through the process. But here's what I would urge you to do if you have been fighting and you see this is what's going on. But you know what? You can have an adulterous heart without fighting, right? So all of us who've sensed some adulterous hearts... In fact, Bobby, what you shared this morning during spiritual gifts time, and right on, exactly. Okay, that, that fits right in here. Here's what James says we should do. Verse 7. First of all, submit yourselves therefore to God. Among other things, what that means is agree with what God has told James to write here. Agree with him. That is the problem when I'm fighting. Frustration over unfulfilled desires, 
lack of God-centered prayer, adulterous heart. Yes, God. So talk to God. Yes, Father, I agree. I've, I've lacked God-centered prayer. There's spiritual adultery in my heart. So submit to what God's diagnosis is. Then, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is amazing. Don't let this become a cliche. You know who the devil is? The devil's nothing compared to Jesus. But he's far more powerful than you by yourself, apart from Jesus. And this is amazing. If you'll resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now what that means is, if you've got an adulterous heart, the devil's got his claws sunk into you. He's got a hold on you if you've got an adulterous heart. Straight up, that's what's happening right now. If your main passion is for something besides knowing God and Jesus, if it's something else, Satan's got his claws in you. And if you will submit to God, put your trust in Jesus, ask Jesus to help you, and then fight and resist the devil, the devil will flee because of Jesus' power as you resist the devil in Jesus' name. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Hear the gospel in that. He's just called us adulterers. And now he says, you adulterers, draw near to God. How can people with adulterous hearts draw near to God? Through Jesus. You're welcomed. Draw near to God. God says, come near to me as you are. Seek him through Jesus in prayer, in his promises, in the truth of the scriptures. Seek him earnestly and you will find him when you seek for him with all your hearts. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Your heart will be satisfied. Your passions will stop warring even if the kitchen sink pipes are still clogged. Then, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is strong, strong language. To show a humble recognition of the sin in my heart and a wholehearted turning back to God in Jesus. And then verse 10. Last one. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. (laughs) Adulterers. Enemies of God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He doesn't leave you wretched and mourning and weeping. That's a path in. Recognition of the sin. That's the path in. He doesn't leave you wretched and mourning and weeping. He forgives, cleanses, satisfies, exalts you. And that's where James leaves us, end of verse 10. Now, we haven't talked at all about how do you go to your husband and talk through you know, the pipes issue, and you know, there's, there's relational communication, things that need to be dealt with, but the most important point is to get your heart changed. So you take the gloves off, and you step out of the ring, so you can talk, Right? That's where James takes us. Okay, what what are some questions this raises? 
We've all got Bibles. We're seeking to be a church where we are all studying the Scriptures. And, and you may think, I'm not sure that's what this passage is saying. Or you may think, um, how does that fit this or whatever? Or is this what you really said? So what are some questions? Well, the, the test, let me just throw out my answer, then some of you can maybe chime in and help. Um, if you can let it go, then it'd be okay to let it go, maybe. Okay? But if, you, if, if it's an issue, then first you've got to get it resolved between you and the Lord, so your, the gloves are off, you're out of the ring, okay? Your heart's at peace in Jesus. He or she hasn't changed yet, but you're, you're content. And you just got to pray and say, Lord, is this something that's worth bringing up? For his sake, for her sake, for her holiness, for his holiness. Is this worth bringing up? But you don't bring it up because you've got to get it off your chest. You've already gotten it off your chest between you and God. It's off your chest. You're, you're, you're at peace. But for his sake, for her sake, should I bring it up? And I think he'll give you wisdom. Can somebody else maybe add some, some wisdom on that? I'm not sure I'm quite nailing it exactly as, as, as clearly as it needs to be. That's, that's what I got. That's helpful, yeah. So know yourself, know your heart. That's good. Thank you. No, in fact, married people, lots of times you won't, right? Okay, And that's, that's a good thing. It's part of the joys of marriage is laying your life down for each other. Um, but when you do that, you, you don't want to do that begrudgingly, right? So you need to work that between you and Jesus. So whatever you're laying down, um, Lord, you're my satisfaction, not this thing that I need to lay down. So you satisfy me, and for the sake of my wife, I want to lay this down Bless her, bless us, you satisfy me. So we don't ever just grit our teeth and do it begrudgingly because that'll bite you. All right, it'll come out in some way. We talked about that last week a little bit, I think, yeah. Yeah, and the wife probably should have brought it up before the couple of weeks were up. And so the first step, wife, would be to, to, to take this before the Lord and to get your heart content in, in Him. And then this, so that's the first step. Okay, and then the second step, you might want to do that again, second step, maybe that's third, fourth. Okay, then, then the next step is to talk to your husband about it and say, Hun, you know, maybe you don't understand what an inconvenience it is for me to, to have to use the bathroom sink to prepare our food or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, do you think you could do this? It's really important to me. So, you, you, you know, but again, you're not, you're just sharing that. And then see how your husband responds. And if he, if he says yes and he doesn't do it, then, well, then you've got to pray for more wisdom and, and then say, you know, should I just go ahead and should we just hire a, a plumber to get it done? And, um, and then if there's a problem with that, talk to your home group leader. Have your home group leader talk to your husband. Right? Have, have an elder talk to your husband. Men, we're not going to play nice around here, okay? <laughs> All right? And the Lord will give you wisdom in these things. Should I talk to him? What should I do first? What should I say? The Lord will give you wisdom. You can talk to a brother or a sister. Keeping talk about your spouse respectful in that context, but there's lots of wisdom and lots of help that you can receive. So, so here, here's what I want to say, church. Be... If you're, if you're involved in a lot of fighting in your marriage or with a friend, what James says here is the key that, that, that can free you from that jail cell. These are the steps. You've got to call it what it is. You've got to recognize it for the sin that it is. And Jesus can break the power of that sin, and he can forgive that sin, and he will let you come near to God, and as you do that, God will come near to you, and he will satisfy you and strengthen you and cleanse you and forgive you and exalt you and meet you. He will. But you've got to take the steps that James lays out. We can't whitewash this stuff. We've got to call it what James calls it, adulterous hearts. So let me just pray for us right now. And some of you, some of you have got adulterous hearts. We all probably have 
areas in which we can think back over this past week and we've seen movement towards idols, movement away from Jesus towards idols. And so we, we all can relate to this and we all need to deal with it. But Lord, we come before you now and we need the work of the cross. We need Jesus, your death, to, to break us free from any little pockets of adultery in our hearts, things that we tend to desire more than you, things that we tend to think about more than you, pursue more than you. Lord, help us. Help us. Thank you for your work on the cross, Jesus, which broke the power of sin and broke the power of Satan. And so bring your power upon us now as we humble ourselves before you and say, this is the truth, this is who we are, we're sorry. Bring your power upon us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sin-forgiving work on the cross, that, that this last week's adultery can be completely forgiven by you because you've paid the punishment it deserved. So bring your power upon us right now, I pray, Lord. Bring a spirit of repentance upon this place. Let there be some mourning, if that's needed, some weeping, if that's needed, so that there can then be the, the joy and the exaltation and the renewal and the cleansing that you want to give. So bring your power upon us right now, I pray, Lord.